We come to the end of our series on the sovereignty of God, but I must hasten to say that even though we come to the end of this series, we should and we must continue to let the sovereignty of God be the focal point of all of our reflections, our meditations, our deliberations, and this should be a part of every believer's life each and every day, in fact, breath by breath. I was praying with the saints in the Christian Fellowship community this morning, and one of them said, well, we come to the end of the book of beginnings, but it is just the beginning for us. As we have looked at this issue of the sovereignty of God, we've looked at it through the life of the story of Joseph. And we see Joseph relying on this truth in every aspect of his life. We see Joseph relying on the fact that God is indeed sovereign in every phase of his life. And I think we'll talk more about this relying in just a bit. God had brought Joseph to Egypt as a teenage slave, but by the time he was 30 years old, he was the second most powerful person in the mighty Egyptian kingdom. Joseph's life certainly demonstrates a pattern of faithfulness, but today, as we look at the many, 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 many lessons that can be gleaned from the life of Joseph, there are three practical applications that we are going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there now with me to Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the seat back in front of you. It's on page 43, and Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's easy. Once you get past the introduction and the ISBN number, keep turning you will get to Genesis, and we're on page 43. Do we have a word from heaven? I'm going to take a little bit of a running start. Primarily, we're going to be in chapter 50, but I'm going to start in chapter 48. At verse 28. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Now this is Jacob bringing all of his sons together and he is blessing each one. The word tells us with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought. He blesses them, and then he gives them specific instructions, take me home. I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. I want to go back to the land that Abraham purchased. There is a spot there for me. That is where I want to be buried. It says that he gathered up his feet and then he died. I'm down now in, chap in chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, 
to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, that's Jacob. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I've found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I've hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him, all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only the children and the flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atag, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atag, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel Mitzrahim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did as he commanded, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. How interesting. So many things in this passage. The first practical application that we glean from the passage that we've just read has to deal primarily with the issue of grief. Joseph gave instructions to embalm Jacob. And I, I want to be clear that this was not an abandonment or an adoption of Egyptian ritual or religion. It really was a practical application. In order to transport Jacob's body from Egypt back to Hebron would have taken several days. The body would have decayed and so the embalming here really is out of practical necessity. You will note from the passage that he doesn't call the priest into this at all, but rather he says the physicians, those that dealt with him, his personal physicians in his household, this is who he asked to do the embalming. So there's no religious connotation here attached to the request. It tells us that Joseph wept and all of the Egyptians were weeping with him. One of the practical things that we see from this and that what the story teaches us is that you can be firmly in the will of God and still experience loss and grief. Even today, people sometimes will suggest it's bad theology, 
that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, then your life is not going to have any problems. You're not going to have any loss. You're not going to have any grief. That just simply is not true. And we have a vivid illustration of that here in the life of Joseph. 40 days for the embalming, 70 days of mourning, more mourning at the threshing floor. Grief takes time. In fact, the experts tell us that when someone is grieving, it's 18 to 24 months before they start to heal. 18 to 24 months before they start to heal. That that we see from Joseph, he is weeping over the death of his dad. And that that I'd want you to take today, the practical application would be this, that it's okay not to be okay when you are grieving. It's okay not to be okay. In fact, you shouldn't be okay. Crying is fine. Our culture, our gender, our relatives, and even sometimes ourselves, we impose expectations on each other and ourselves that just aren't realistic when it comes to the issue of grief. Grief, beloved, is evidence of how significant the relationship was. Grief is an expression of the love that we had for this loved one, and it's okay not to be okay. Oftentimes, people will tell people, and I've heard them say, well, that's about enough crying. That's enough. You've been sad long enough. Not long ago, I was at a funeral, and he meant well. I understand that, but this uncle went up to his 14-year-old nephew, who had just lost his dad, and told him, well, it's time for you to man up now. That's enough crying. He's 14 years old. Of course he should be crying, and it's okay not to be okay. There's something else here, though, that I can't linger, but I, I want to pull over and just talk about it for a minute. These plans had been made. Jacob had the burial plot. He was prepared, and he knew where he wanted to go. Losing a loved one is a stressful situation, and it's often enhanced by the fact that People are caught by surprise and then multiple issues arise that need immediate attention. The cave had been purchased by Abraham. It's the only part of the land of Canaan that Abraham had a deed for. It was the original burial place of Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah. My point is he had made preparation I can't linger, but I would suggest this to you. If you have loved ones, make your plans. I've oftentimes heard people say, well, you know, just throw me in a ditch somewhere. Don't have to make any plans. Just roll me over into a ditch and it will be fine. Well, you tell me, where, what road is that and what ditch is that <laughs> where we're just rolling people over into? and somebody still got to take you, they still gonna have to roll you in there. You still create, that's not, you're not creating any uh, less problems for people. I'm gonna move on, but the point is, 
The inevitability of death is just that. And so we should make plans to take some of that burden, some of that stress off of our loved ones. And so that's one less thing that they need to deal with. Oftentimes when death comes into life and people are beset with grief, they see this tragedy as an injustice or sometimes they feel like they're being punished. But grief is never an excuse to be rude, to be insolent, to be critical, to be demanding, to be entitled. Note Joseph's humility. He's the second in command in Egypt, but he doesn't march into Pharaoh and demand anything. He tells the household of Pharaoh, listen, I promised my dad, could you please talk to Pharaoh? Would you let him know the situation that I'm in? Do you see the humility? Would you ask him if it would be okay for me to go? Very respectful. Our pain, our loss does not grant us license to be cruel, to be vindictive, to be vengeful, which really leads me to our second practical application, and that's grace. We see grief, and we see grace. An accurate common definition describes grace as the unmerited favor of God towards man. If we step back two paces and ask, well, why, Lord, are you even having your children, this nation, this set-apart group, why Egypt? Egypt was a country in which Jacob's descendants would have to remain as a separate people. Now, they were shepherds, and we know from earlier passages that we looked at that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. Do you remember when they first came and Joseph was eating with his brothers and they brought the food in and Joseph ate by himself and the Egyptians were by themselves and they put the Hebrews by themselves because it says in uh, chapter 43, the shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And so having them in Egypt would set this natural buffer with this people. They had already started intermarriages in Canaan and so this would slow that down and allow them to be a distinctive nation, separate and apart. Grace. During the 400 years that they were in exile there in Egypt, that north-south corridor was a highway for many, many armies. Had they stayed in place, there was no way they would have been able to proliferate, to grow into the large nation that they became, simply because during that time they would have been beset constantly by armies coming and going from the north and to the south. God's grace in moving them. We see this grace and, you know, they took this really roundabout route to get to Hebron through the Nigrave, around the Dead Sea, to the mountainous plateau of the Moabite plateau, then Jericho, then back to Hebron. It says it was beyond Jordan, meaning it's to the east of Jordan. Why would they take such a roundabout route with so many people? Most scholars suggest that 
the Canaanites were hostile to intruders and they were protecting that southern border and so they had to go around them. This reinforces God's grace as he moved them out of the way and placed them in a land that was fertile because of the Nile, where they would be protected, where they'd be allowed to grow, and where they could become this distinctive nation, grace. When Jacob first met Pharaoh, he was 130 years old. When he passed, he was 147. He knows all of his sons. Not only does he know them by name, he knows their character flaws, and he blesses each one of them. Now that's God's grace. That's enabling. You see people walking around the Moody Church with these big placards on that said, we're here to serve, and they have their names on them. Have you seen those? That's not being warm or witness. Their name is on there because people forget who they are. So they can look and find out, oh yes, I remember. He's 147 years old and he remembers. He can't see well, he's weak and he's feeble, but he knows each one of them and he blesses them. This is God's grace. Look again at the text, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, huh, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. He had demonstrated that multiple occasions, but their guilt wouldn't allow them to appropriate grace. Their guilt wouldn't allow them to appropriate grace. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Here it is. Thus he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. Here's what Joseph is saying. He's saying, look, brothers, let's get this straight once and for all. There is a God and I'm not him. I'm I in the place of God. Joseph understood that there was God and that he wasn't God and that it wasn't his job to bring retribution upon his brothers. If the Lord would choose to punish them, then that's the Lord's business, Joseph said. Now, from a human perspective, Joseph had every right and the ability and the responsibility and the authority and the power to punish his brothers for their evil do deeds. He could have done that. But he says, 
such retribution is not my place. It belongs to God. Because Joseph believed in the sovereignty of God, he was able to look beyond his brother's sinful motives. And he acknowledged and answered the question that everyone asks all the time. Who's in charge here? Who's running things here? Beloved, when you're in a position of power and authority, do you exercise grace? Do you seek to comfort and speak kindly? Do you want to instill fear? Do you seek revenge? Are you looking for payback? Uh-uh, uh-uh. Ain't nobody gonna talk to me like that. I don't know who they think they are playing with. I always sit in that seat. Why would they come in here and sit in my seat? They know that's my seat. Give me some crazy glue or something. I bet you won't sit in my seat next Sunday. <laughs> if you're hurting, do you want other people to hurt and suffer too? What an example of grace here. This grace was available to all of them. He spoke words to comfort them. He spoke kindly to them, even Judah. You remember it was Judah that said, let's kill him. It was Judah that said, let's throw him in the pit. It was Judah that said, let's sell him and make some money off of him. And he still is extending grace. God blessed Joseph in the pit, in Potiphar's house, in prison, and in his position as ruler of Egypt. Joseph knew and understood this simple fact. He was a recipient of grace. And the sovereignty of God was always the focal point of everything for him. He viewed everything in his life through the lens of God's sovereignty. Which brings us to three, glory. The last paragraph of Genesis reveals Joseph's faith in the sovereignty of God. It reveals what it is that Joseph really relied upon. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph relied on the covenant of God. Someday, God would visit them, he told them, and take them again to the land sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, last week, Pastor Beth shared with us some thoughts regarding God's plan, and we are reminded anew that God, in fact, has a plan. The God that we talk about this morning has kept every promise he's ever made, and he's never made a promise he can't keep. 
He neither forgets nor has he forgotten. That is why Joseph could say, carry my bones home because someday God will lead us out of this promised land. Well, how do you know that to be true, Joseph? Because God said it. And if God said it, it will happen. Someday, we won't have to deal with the dissipation, disgrace, and moral decay of racial discrimination. Someday, there will be an end to our suffering, our headaches, our grief, our loss. Someday, there will be an end to pain and tears. Someday, you won't have to face betrayal and backbiting and gossip. Someday we too will be gathered home to be with our God and we will be ushered into his presence. And beloved, someday Jesus himself will return and the world will see him in all of his glory. Someday he's coming. How do we know it? Because he said it. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and King of Kings. You can't walk into this sanctuary and not be reminded of that fact. Jesus is the same, beloved, yesterday, today, and forever, and his word remains throughout eternity. If he said it, he's going to do it. No matter how discouraged Joseph must have been due to the many reversals in his life, we never see him doing less than his best. In moments of crisis, he chooses to do what is right in the sight of God. No matter the test, no matter the stress, he never settles for anything less than his absolute best. Each child of God is precious to God. Now, God may not have a big task for you, like the task he had for Joseph, but don't be deceived. That in no way means that you are not valued and that you're not precious in the sight of God. God loves you, praise his name. We see the glory of God and the grace that he provides us, grace that is sufficient in our time of need. We see God glorified in the way that he provides the way of escape for us when we are tempted. The glory of God is revealed in the enabling of the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin and empowers us to do the work for the kingdom. God's love for us neither wanes nor does it dissipate. It doesn't run out. He loves us so much, in fact, he sacrificed his son. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will never perish but will have everlasting life. God knew what you needed before you even knew you had a need. When you come to the realization that you are a sinner and you say, oh my goodness, my life is a mess. I am separated from God. He says, I've already worked it out for you. This is the glory of God that we talk about this morning. The last paragraph of Genesis reveals 
Joseph's faith. He relies on the covenant of God. My question to you this morning is simple. I'm going to ask you plain, what is it that you're relying upon today? Your job? Your career? Employment? Your spouse? Your mate? Your significant other? Maybe the law, your money, your health, your good looks. Don't look around, look at me. <laughs> your intellect, your wit. What is it that you're relying on today? Your family name, your inheritance, they never buried Joseph. He was in that sarcophagus for 400 years when God called them out of Egypt and sent them back to the land that he had promised. 50 years from now, short period of time when we think about eternity, short period of time when you think about 50 years, 50 years from now, the company that you rely so much upon, will it even be in business? 50 years from now, the money that you rely upon, will it still have the same spending power? 50 years from now, will any of us even be here? Beloved, only what we do for Christ will last. The sovereignty of God. It's more than a series. It's more than a phrase. It's how we should be living every day. Acknowledging that God is in control of our lives, that he has a plan, and we want to Bend our will to obedience to God's word. This is not a pithy saying and it's not self-help. You can only do this with the enabling of the Holy Spirit and you can't have the Holy Spirit unless you're saved and beloved, you can't be saved without Jesus. It's easy in this date and in this time and in this culture for us to be deceived that we are in control. The technology that is at our command suggests that we control our destinies. It's easy to be deceived. If we Except the good news of the gospel that Jesus did exactly what the Bible says he did. That he came to redeem mankind, that he was sacrificed on the cross, that he laid in that tomb for three days, and that he rose again victorious over sin and death and Satan to redeem mankind. That is the truth that we should never get too far in front of us. We should wake up to that fact every morning, thanking him 
Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming me. Thank you, Lord, for using me. Thank you for the fresh grace that you've given me with each 24 hours. And thank you for the opportunity that I have even now to tell anybody I encounter about Jesus, the Christ. This is the sovereignty of God. It demands practical daily application. We can't put this on the shelf till the next time we dust off a series on Genesis. The sovereignty of God, beloved, is how we should look at everything and how we should respond as though God is in fact in control of our lives. Amen. Amen. Father, I've said what you'd have me to say. And we thank you that even though it appears so often that this world, this planet, this state, this city is just spinning out of control, that it's you who are controlling all things. Your word does not return void, so... Would you take the little that I have and multiply it now for your glory? If there's anyone sitting here this morning and said, oh, I don't know Jesus, but I know I'm a sinner, then beloved God himself has given you that ability to understand that. You don't have to leave this place the way that you came in this morning. Or maybe you've just been living like God doesn't matter at your job, in your school, in your classroom. Will you lay all that at his feet this morning and say, Father, you control everything. My money, my finances, my job, my career, my school. I lay it all at your feet and now you fill my hands with that that you would have me to say and to do and to have. Is that your prayer this morning? Father, help us. Do now what only you can do. Enable Equip, encourage, convict, call. We'll always be quick to give you the credit, to give you the honor, to give you the praise. Now we do pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, and amen.